0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Vet ECC podcast. Today on the show we have Radford G. Davis who is an Associate Professor of Veterinary Microbiology and Preventative Medicine at Iowa State University. On today's podcast we talk about a number of things, talk about what books Radford is reading, uh, why he got into public health in the first place uh, and then we move into more clinical topics like rabies, other zoonoses, needle stick injuries, uh, hand washing, barrier nursing, um, as well as how to come up with an infectious disease control plan. So if you're pressed for time, uh, he and I do chat for a while before we get into clinical stuff, so do feel free to skip ahead to about the 17-minute mark. So without further ado, here is the podcast. I suppose we're, we're going to start a, a tradition with all of our guests here who so graciously volunteer their time of hassling them about what they've been up to recently. And um, have you read anything interesting, seen any good movies? What's the family up to, et cetera, et cetera. On the <laughs> On the leisure side, any, any recommendations? On the leisure side?
1: Uh, let's see. Uh, as far as reading goes, uh, I just finished a book. You know, I don't know if it's a book that most people would read for leisure, but it was a book written by... A man named Amartya Sen, who was a uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he wrote a book called Development as Freedom. And the thrust of the book is really about when we talk about uh, developing worlds, developing countries, and improving development for people and prosperity, how we have tended to focus on the economic aspect, the GDP of a country, or how much somebody earns. And his argument was essentially that that's only a small part of it. We have to have uh, freedom of choice, freedom of opportunity, uh, equality, freedom of speech and press and elections and, and those things. So the book ran the gamut from very philosophical discussions to uh, uh, discussions on on these freedoms to discussions on um, uh, famine and and so forth. So it was really a great book that I, I really enjoyed, and he talked about things like the Irish famine and things like that. So it was it was a really good book. It was one of the more intellectual books I've read in a in, in a while. Um, the other book I I've been reading is a uh, book on Winston Churchill. Actually, it's uh-huh. a new biography out by Andrew Roberts. Uh, on It's called Churchill, and uh, I'm about halfway through it, and it's it's fascinating. I did not know much about him, and so it's been a great book. And I, I've told my wife and kids kind of as I'm reading this book about Winston Churchill and what he was like, and I've, I've said more than once, I'm sure that if I had been alive and had known him at the time, I would not have liked him. <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about him or have read anything or – seen any documentaries on him but um, yeah he was very very assertive and very bombastic and very um, you know very um, uh, what they want to call maybe declamatory very uh, with very uh, lofty elegant but uh, rhetoric uh, rhetorical kind of speech very you know he, he was always in people's faces and uh, he had a lot of people who didn't like him. He had some who did, and uh, but uh, it, it's, it's, so far, he's a very interesting person.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it's um, it would be a shame not to read that actually, because as a, an English person, it would be criminal not to uh, know more about the man. Uh-huh. But yeah, you you do get the um the bruises along with the the positive things as well when you start reading more into.
1: And I knew he was a writer. I knew he was a writer, but that's how he made most of his money was by writing.
0: That I did not know.
1: Yeah. he When he was in the army, he wrote uh, – he was a journalist. So as he served in the army, he would write columns for newspapers and he would sell those and make money. He would sell stories to magazines, and then he graduated to writing books. And he made millions of dollars doing that. He wrote screenplays. No way. Sold them. Yeah, several. <laughs> I don't think they ever made any of the movies. If I recall, somewhere in the book, he, he said that that none of the screenplays he ever uh, wrote made it into um, production. But uh, as I understand, he wrote quite a few.
0: Well, then I will. Well, not only will I I have to read it, but I'll throw it, the links to both of those up in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in in reading them, they can check them out. Sure. Um, I've just read. Uh, this will hurt or This Is Gonna Hurt by Adam Kay. It's been quite an important book over here because he is an ex-doctor and he used to work for the NHS and he was a OBGYN resident and it's just a collection of his diaries over the course of his training, over Mm. six or seven years and just talking about everything he went through from the highs to the lows and how the system eventually sort of broke him down and now he's left medicine altogether and he does medical writing and comedy so he, yeah he writes he writes and serves as a, a medical consultant but you know it's a very quick read and it reads very much from the mind of a comedian for sure but it does make you stop and catch your breath every now and again especially with with some of your stories and I imagine if you've never worked in medicine or experienced medicine it would be quite a harrowing read actually um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't have a bad mm-hmm. thing to say about the NHS. He's very positive about it. It's just um, how thinly stretched it is, and and how that eventually ends up with him leaving. But I won't spoil the ending. It
1: does sound interesting.
0: Well, yeah, if you get a chance to pick it up, it's um, it's it's short and it's cheap, and um, I'll throw that one up in the the show notes as well. Okay. Well, so yeah. then, how do you how do you end up doing what you're doing? What what made you? pursue this path of of public health
1: okay well this is a little bit of a long story so i'll try not to make it too long oh we like long stories uh, uh, well uh, when i graduated from high school i didn't have a clue as to what i was going to do and i ended up uh going to welding school as a trade because my father wanted me to he was one of those people who said well you you should always have a trade to fall back on and So I did that, and I spent six months learning welding, and then I went to work at a nuclear power plant. And the people who work these types of operations are very itinerant. They go from one big construction job to another, and they're always on the move. the life was hard and the people were very difficult to work with in lots of different ways. And that motivated me to want to get out of construction. So I remember lying on the couch one day thinking, what should I do? And then it came to me. I wanted to either do uh, medicine or veterinary medicine. So I graduated from high school in Utah, so in the spring I moved back to Utah, enrolled in a small college, and started taking classes and trying to decide whether I should become a physician or a veterinarian. I I took a job as a nurse's aide for uh, at this local facility, local rehabilitation facility, essentially a nursing home for for older people, and I. Uh, I made it through one shift and decided that's not for me. (laughs) I I took like the, the worst possible experience probably one could ever have in medicine, taking care of geriatric patients who are incontinent and lots of demands. And I lasted one shift and I said, you know, if I can't do that, I probably shouldn't be a physician because I don't want to go into it for the money. So I said, okay, you know, I'll be a veterinarian. So I, i finished my prerequisites and I got into veterinary school at Colorado State. One of my classmates, my wife, Chris August, she was in my class and in our second year, we got to know each other better and then we we got married. And she was from Arizona, I was from Utah. In Utah, so if I wanted to go to school in Colorado, Colorado would charge me out of state tuition because I'm not a Colorado resident. Utah covered the out-of-state portion of that, so I only had to pay in-state tuition for Colorado. Arizona did the same thing for my wife. They said, okay, we'll cover your out-of-state portion. They would always select a group of like five or six people from Arizona and support them going to veterinary school in Colorado. They did that, but they said, we're going to do that for you, Chris, but you have to come back to Arizona and practice for four years. It's sort of a way to you know, get people to come back and, and pay taxes into the system and an economic benefit out of sending somebody out of state so we had to go back to arizona for four years so we went back to tucson where she was originally from and i took a job immediately in a uh 24 7 clinic that i worked emergency duty at night for
0: Oh, good man
1: and, and yeah well <laughs> I did that because I really liked emergency medicine. I liked the unpredictability. I liked the adrenaline. Uh, You never know what's going to walk through the door in the next five minutes kind of thing. But the problem was that the clinic, I soon learned, was very poorly managed. It was owned by three people, one who only came in on Sundays to do the books and cut the paychecks, one who only wanted uh, to deal with daytime stuff She didn't want to do anything with the nighttime stuff. And then the nighttime person would only work with nighttime stuff, not with daytime stuff. And none of them had – they were not managerially speaking on the same page. They would create protocols or policies in the clinic that would change from week to week, and nobody would ever tell me. And they really weren't good mentors. I came in, and probably the best mentor at the clinic turned out to be this technician – We'd been working there for many years i remember my first my first big case being a um at gdv in a great dane and i'm all by myself i've got me and this one technician and i'd probably been there for less than a month and i said well what would dr smith do and this technician looked at me and she said well we get the dog back to the uh, the tub, we'd tube it, relieve relieve the gas. You know, she, she just listed off this litany of things that that she this other doctor would do. And I said, well, let's do those things. So that was my mentorship, and I, it it started to make me a little bitter. I think after a while that um, I felt like I was floundering and starting to make stuff up yeah. to some degree. So after about a year, I thought I can't take this. What can I do? So I was in that mentality for a few years when I decided to go back to school. And in Tucson is the University of Arizona, large university of 40,000 students, and they have a veterinary science department. And in the veterinary science department was this veterinarian from South Africa. And I started into a PhD project uh, looking at plague in Arizona, Yersinia pestis. So for two years, I took the classwork for a PhD and spent a summer camping around Arizona. So I would go to different places in Arizona, set out rodent traps, trap the rodents, and then I would dump them into a large container with uh, inside were cotton balls soaked in uh, isoflurane or halothane, dump the rat into that container, screw on the lid, wait for it to go to sleep, take it out draw blood, collect fleas, set it free. So my research was dependent upon me isolating Yersinia pestis from these these rodents. So I completed two years worth of cor- coursework. Meanwhile, I'm working nights, I'm working three or four nights a week and my research isn't really going anywhere because I'm not finding any Yersinia pestis. In the lab is another other guy doing a PhD but he was also doing a master's of public health at the medical school there. So he was telling me about this MPH degree. I kind of listened to him, but one of the things I had to do for the Yersinia pestis research was I had to, I'll back up a bit. I had to figure out a research project, what, what needed to be known. And it was really the description of the epidemiology in rodents in Arizona, trying to map that out better. That was going to be my PhD. So to do that, I went to the state health department in Phoenix, and there I met a woman, and she had the title state public health veterinarian, and I'd never heard of anybody having that kind of job before, and she had only graduated from vet school about two years before I met her, and her job was to investigate cases of rabies or hantavirus or plague, in the humans, but also be involved in collecting field samples. So if there was a case of somebody with Yersinia pestis infection, they would conduct an interview with that person if they were still alive or with the family if they died. And then they would go to the area they think that person got exposed. So if that person said, oh, I'd been hiking in these mountains over there. So they would eventually go to those mountains and set out traps,
0: collect fleas. So you're just hunting for the plague.
1: Yeah. So I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And she did the same thing for anybody who had uh, came down with hantavirus or, you know, if there was a rabies case, she would also um, conduct the the, sort of the trace back and find out where that uh, person got exposed. I thought that was kind of cool because she was using her veterinary knowledge to make a difference in human lives, saving human lives. And so that kind of goes back to my decision. Should I become a physician or should I become a veterinarian? Well, this was kind of doing a little of both. And I thought that was kind of fun. So the next stop was in order to work with Yersinia pestis in the lab, I had to learn the laboratory techniques. So I went to Fort Collins, Colorado, where I went to vet school at Colorado State. But in Fort Collins is a branch of the CDC.
0: And that is the Center for Disease Control in the US.
1: The vector-borne zoonotic disease division at CDC. And they deal with plague, among other things. And I spent a week there learning the laboratory techniques. And when I was there, at CDC, I met two veterinarians who were part of the CDC's Epidemiology, EIS, Epidemiology Intelligence Service. These were veterinarians who were hired for two years to work in the plague division. And they would respond to state requests to help out on plague cases or international requests. So they'd go to Peru or India and work up outbreaks From animal and human side of things, and I thought that was even cooler. So I thought, well, this is really what I want to do. So by the time I came back, my research really wasn't going anywhere. I learned about the MPH at the medical school. I said, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be in a lab. So I told my major professor, I'm going across the street. I'm dropping out of the PhD, and I'm going to go across the street and get an MPH. And he said, good idea. I'm going to take that as a positive. Not that he wanted to get rid of me, but so I I did that. It didn't take me long. I only had to take three or four classes to complete it because I'd done so much for the PhD already. It all just applied already. Pretty much all of it applied to the the master's. Finished the MPH and I started looking for a job and I had a few job opportunities. One was here at Iowa State. At that time, by now, we had our first child. And I thought, well, financially speaking, this was a good opportunity, it gave us the ability to, for my wife to stay at home and for me to uh, to bring in the paycheck. So that that worked out well. And it's a not a large town. It's not too small. So it's kind of quiet, but it's got that, that university vibe to it with yeah. activities always going on and, you know, cultural things. And so we liked that. So... I've been here now going on 20 years now.
0: Fantastic. What a great story. So if you had any really memorable cases, you that was going to be my next question, is outside of the the lecturing and the research, what, what sort of work are you doing? What are you doing out in the field and what um, interesting and wacky cases have you had recently or in recent memory?
1: Yeah, so mostly I got my tenure in the field of uh, agroterrorism, terrorism terrorism focusing on agriculture. I only really did that because after the World Trade Towers and Anthrax letters and all the money and attention, that was easier to accomplish that. But I moved away from that after I got tenure into more of the public health that I wanted to do. And what I really like doing is working in poor countries to help improve animal health and public health so thereby improving people's lives, livelihoods, prosperity. In 2010, I did a sabbatical with a food and agriculture organization. I went and worked in Washington, D.C. at the liaison office. I was the only veterinarian there. About halfway through my time there, they sent me to Rome headquarters at FAO, where where they store all the veterinarians. And when I was there, and they were trying to figure out as an organization who they were going to back uh, with, with money and marketing for World Rabies Day on September 28th. And they had on their radar was a guy in Sierra Leone who developed animal health clubs for the school kids. So he had these, this curriculum and these clubs in the schools that, that he would go in and teach, and he was teaching them how to take care of animals, but also about diseases like rabies. So they said, OK, let's let's put our time and money toward that. And so they sent me and one other veterinarian to Sierra Leone, along with a BBC Radio 4 guy and an independent filmmaker. And I can send you, actually, there are two uh, YouTubes on this. So we spent the better part of 10 days traveling around Sierra Leone. And we would go from one town to the next. There would be – the kids would be let out of school. They'd all be in their school uniforms, and each school made these banners about World Rabies Day, and there would be marching bands, and they'd have these parades go down through the town, and they'd end up at the town hall where there would be speeches and politicians, and then they'd have some skits and some music, and it it was really cool. It was very fun. A lot of impromptu music and, and things going on on the streets as well. And in the process, we would also visit the uh, uh, health clinics. We would inquire, have you seen any rabies? Do you have documentation? Uh, how many cases do you see? What's your protocol if somebody comes in and says, I, I've been bitten by a dog? Those kinds of things. So we, we try to keep track of that. We met with World Health Organization officials FAO officials and, and so forth and uh, came up with kind of a strategy when we were done. But I remember one, one interesting aspect was that when we met with the WHO country office chief, a man from Ethiopia, he was unaware that rabies existed in Sierra Leone until we came to him and said, what are you doing about rabies? And he said, essentially, we have rabies? Yeah, you have rabies.
0: <laughs> Brilliant.
1: So, and I remember meeting a group of medical students from the UK as well. It's one small town. There's this group of uh, medical students are all preparing to go out to uh, some, uh, some other part of Sierra Leone for about a week. And this, uh, this young woman, and when she learned I was a veterinarian, she said, well, you know, I, have I've found this, this mom, mother dog with some puppies and Come here, I, I need to show you. So she took me a, a couple of buildings down and around the corner, and there was this mother dog in this 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 hole of a, in, in, the, in, the, in the ground uh, that she had made a nest with her puppies. And so this medical student was very concerned about the health of the mother and the puppies, and she wanted me to, to check them out because this medical student was going to be gone. She wasn't going to come back, and so she wanted to know that these were going to be okay before she left. So I found that kind of uh, touching and interesting. So that's, that's kind of what I do. Uh, I went back in 2012 to help the government and develop a, what's called a community animal health worker program. So Sierra Leone only has about five veterinarians, all of which are either at, at retirement age or have retired. They all work for the government. There's really only one person who sees animals and, and, he has the only small animal clinic in, in the country, but he works part-time for the government. But um, I went back, they don't train veterinarians, they don't have veterinary school, they don't send people out to other countries and bring them back as veterinarians. So they wanted to train people in villages to provide basic animal health care. So I went to advise them on that. So that's kind of what I like to do.
0: I went out to Um, South India when I was a student and that's when I, uh, that's when you and I first got in touch because I emailed you about a a needle stick injury while I was working out there and I thought, shit, I don't think you can get rabies from blood exposure, but I should probably, I should probably (laughs) check before I invest in a bunch of uh, vaccines, but they've just reported that there were zero rabies deaths in Goa um, last year. Hmm. which is is spectacular because there's something like what forty fifty thousand um rabies deaths per year and a large majority are are in india
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that where you were goa
0: uh no that um oh. i was Tamil nadu um down in in uti but it was the same um the same group um worldwide okay. veterinary services but well let's let's talk about rabies for a bit then have you ever heard of Cora the website no so it's sort of a question and answer website and um, I'll browse on there for fun and read about various topics and it's just you know people ask questions and people who know the answer will come along and answer them and usually the answers are are very good and lengthy Um, but you often see depending on what you read and what you like and what you answer then you get this digest and you get exposed to different questions they say hey we think you might answer this question um, there are so many questions about rabies and a lot of them are a puppy licks my face am I going to get rabies um, a pregnant dog licked my hand am I going to get rabies so it seems like there's so little education about it out there and then even for me as a veterinary student you know I, I should have known better so I mean what what in the developed world which is a word I don't necessarily like, but let's say in North America and and Europe, what is the rabies risk and um, how many cases are you seeing and and who is our vulnerable population? Hmm,
1: so in westernized countries, I just did a webinar for, I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, a group in the UK called the Webinar Vet, Yes. Yeah, I just did a one-hour webinar on this uh, for them. I think there's, there are a lot of people who don't have knowledge of rabies. It is in Europe, in the United States, uh, it's a rare disease, and it's, it's really hard. Even physicians don't know much about it and, and maybe don't know how to handle uh, an exposure question or a case because you know it's, it's a very rare disease and they've got a lot of other uh, more common things to worry about. In the US, we probably have anywhere from 1 to 3 people die every year from rabies. I think people back on the eastern coast might be a little more aware of rabies because they are inundated with the raccoon variant. So there are a lot of cases in, ra- in raccoons along the eastern seaboard of the United States. So I think those people probably are a little bit more aware of the rabies risk than the rest of the United States is. We differ from, let's say, the UK and, and Western Europe in that we have the classical rabies virus, whereas you, you have viruses. Yes. You don't, you don't have the classic, but you can still develop the same symptoms as rabies would. So there are some wonderful uh, reports out there about people who have been exposed to bats in the UK or Netherlands, Belgium, France, and being infected with, with these lyssaviruses. And the, the protocol to treat them is the exact same thing. Wash the wound and get to the rabies post-exposure prophylaxis. Yeah how do how to improve education of the average person is i think really difficult i don't know if there's a really good answer it's, it's it's hard
0: yeah we do we do get the occasional bat brought into the into our practices and we because they're a protected species in the UK we're quite fortunate to have a lot of experienced bat handlers um so if a bat comes in we are we are able to get someone to come and and pick up said bat quite Back, mm-hmm. <laughs> back quite promptly, yeah. um, and actually, in in response, I wrote a bat handling protocol because I think in England, especially, having very little rabies exposure, there's really very little thought about it. Whereas in Florida, you know, it's a big deal, and the law is if a patient has right. been bitten by a wild animal, they're not vaccinated for rabies. Under Florida law, they must be euthanized and submitted to the state lab for evaluation um, as far as I'm aware that may have changed. Um so it is something that creeps up around here and, and we have the odd odd worry about it and then it just disappears from, from mm-hmm. our minds. And there's no requirement to be vaccinated for rabies over here as a veterinary student, whereas I understand if you're going to school in the States you you must be vaccinated. Is that right?
1: Right. Yep, that's right. Yep. They all they all get their vaccines.
0: Oh, lucky devils. <laughs> I will so then they can just travel
1: and just be carefree about petting any animal or, or bat yeah absolutely dog or cat
0: <laughs> well I will say that um, to my school's benefit if you were going somewhere for a school or education related thing and you needed a rabies vaccine they would foot the bill so that was quite nice
1: oh that is nice yeah our students aren't so lucky they have to pay
0: well so what about um rabies quarantine so for our our north american listeners what are the current recommendations if you have a, a pet brought in who is suspected to have been bitten by a potentially rabid animal what do you do if we
1: have a pet brought in that's potentially been bitten by a rabid animal or a potentially rabid animal i should say yes is that correct so if it's a pet, say it's a dog bitten by another dog, that's going to vary as to what they have to do based on local laws. Uh, there are recommendations that are out there put out by the National Association of State Public Health Veterinarians. They publish the rabies compendium. It's updated every every one to three years. A new version comes out. And they don't cover dog to dog. What they cover is if the dog has been bitten by another animal that is suspected of having rabies or does have rabies or is a rabies reservoir species then here's what you do but if it's just my neighbor's dog got in a fight with my dog generally dog-to-dog transmission in the united states we don't worry about it i don't worry about it because we don't have the canine strain of rabies that that dog would have had to pick up, say, a raccoon version or a skunk version or a fox version of rabies, developed rabies, and then attacked another dog. If that attacking dog appears to be suspicious and acting like it has rabies, um, then we're going to consider that an exposure, obviously. You could uh, quarantine the offending dog, the attacking dog, for 10 days and if it was shedding virus in its saliva when it bit, say, my dog, then it will show signs in those 10 days. It will become obvious. And by day 10, it will be in a coma or dead if it had virus in its saliva when it bit my dog. But whether you can actually do that, hold that attacking dog for 10 days, really depends on local law enforcement, local animal control laws, regulations, and, and how good they are. So some states, some areas, they want you to report that as a veterinarian. If you learn about a dog to dog bite, you're required to report it. Other places are not. So it, it kind of varies. Um, if I had a dog that, had, that, that came into my clinic and had just been in a dog fight. And I saw a lot of that when I was in practice. I knew the epidemiology, my state of rabies that we had not seen a case of dog rabies in Arizona for more than 10 years. So I was in no way worried about rabies transmission. Now, if this were back East where there's a lot of uh, raccoon rabies and there was a dog fight, then I might be a little bit more concerned about that. I might be pushing more to have that, the dog that attacked quarantine for 10 days. But again, and whether you can legally do that, it's going to depend upon the local laws of that area. And who's know, going to pay for it,
0: who's going to handle the patient, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose right, right.
1: In those, right. So in those areas, somebody's, somebody's worked out who's going to pay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very well. <laughs>
1: I mean, it, 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 when you, you know, expand that and you talk about, let's say, a dog biting a child, it comes down to, well, was the dog vaccinated before or not? You know, and some local authorities will say, let's kill the dog and test it. Others will say, well, hold on, let's wait for 10 days. And that 10 days must take place in a local veterinary clinic. And the owner has to pay the bill. So in some areas, the city may, may cover that cost. In some areas, it may uh, make the owner, they, they may give the choice of the owner look, you pay for 10 days for this dog to be boarded in a veterinary clinic and you pay the bill, or you euthanize. So, if they can't afford the, to pay the, for the 10 days, then they euthanize. If, if a dog bites anything, human or another animal, and you want to know, does that dog have rabies and could it have infected that, that person that it, it bit? Yeah, you always hold it for for 10 days. It will show signs. And some people get that confused with incubation. So if the dog were incubating rabies, so let's say it had been bitten by a skunk a week before, and it's incubating rabies, that could take several weeks or a few months before it shows signs. And there are cases actually in the UK of dogs going through your six-month quarantine years and years ago and then exiting the quarantine and then breaking with rabies. So there are incubation periods of dogs up to seven months.
0: Not very well.
1: But it all it really comes down to, and I stress this with students, knowing what your, your state law is, what your local law is. In the UK, the one thing I liked when I was living in the UK. Now one and, law, and maybe, brother.
0: Just <laughs> right, Go right. one <laughs> law. And
1: that was so nice. I mean, maybe I didn't know everything about, all the different aspects, but of, of different laws and that, but it it seemed rather nice to, you know, if you went to the Southwest to Cornwall, if you went up to Scotland, things were pretty much always the same. And it's not that when you cross the state line here, uh, things change. Uh, Texas, you go down to Texas. So in Iowa, we, if a dog is bitten by a, a skunk, we've got this protocol. We're going to, um boost the dog's vaccine if it's been vaccinated already and we're going to watch it for 45 days if it's never been vaccinated we're going to say we should euthanize that dog because it was a high risk exposure you go down to texas they say well let's vaccinate it now let's vaccinate it again in three weeks and let's vaccinate it again uh at nine weeks or something like that they've got this or seven weeks they've got this ramped up almost human-like protocol that they apply to dogs that it's not recommended in any literature whatsoever, but that's the way they do it. Some people want to euthanize the dog and test right away. The problem is, is if you do that, sometimes the virus hasn't uh, pathological damage in the brain and hasn't spread enough that if you euthanize the dog, it could appear normal. And it can be shedding virus in its saliva for a couple of days or so, two, three, four days before it shows signs but we keep it for 10 just to be safe. But let's say it's shedding today and it won't show signs for three days. But if I euthanize the dog today, the pathology in the brain may not be advanced enough that on a test, the uh, fluorescent antibody test, that it would come up positive. So we always recommend it's better to wait the 10 days. Just put the dog in a, a quarantine for 10 days. Don't bother euthanizing unless they're unless they're really, you know, the owners can't afford it or the, to pay for the quarantine or something like that.
0: Do you think there will ever be an effective anti-mortem test for rabies or is that just not realistic?
1: There have been, in the last 20 years, I think a couple of companies that have tried to, to sell such a thing. And there were saliva-based tests where you have this this piece of, essentially litmus paper that you coat with saliva and it turned blue or something to that effect if it was positive and none of those those two ever worked out because the false positive and false negative rates were just too high so it's it's really difficult uh, you'd have to have a test that was always 100% accurate on both sensitivity and specificity because Right. If you if you called a dog that had rabies negative and sent it back home, and it licked some kids' faces, and you know that could be a really big problem. And then if you called the dog positive who and wasn't, and you recommend the euthanasia, well now you're just euthanizing animals for uh, no reason. So I don't see an anti mortem test in the, the the near future. Maybe in fifty years, but um, in in twenty years, I've seen two. Come and go because of uh, they're just not good enough, not not accurate enough.
0: Vaccinate, 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 right?
1: Yeah, and on the postmortem side, they're moving away. The DFA is still the the gold standard, sectioning the brain and putting it on a slide and tagging it with the uh, fluorescent antibodies to rabies. But now CDC is is uh, moving toward PCR. So I think we'll probably see in the next few years a move away from DFA to pcr which would be more clean and uh, quicker less less resource intensive
0: okay well so what what in your mind poses genuine risk to the small animal practitioner um obviously farm is its own bag of worms, but what, I mean, when you're talking to your students, what do you warn them to watch out for? And, and what sort of things can we do to keep ourselves safe? And what do you find people taking for granted?
1: Mm. Well, I think it's probably similar in the UK, but about close to 80% of our class are are women. And so, one of the things I talk to them about are all the different zoonotic agents that, as women, they can be exposed to, especially if they're pregnant, and the risks not only to them but to their fetus. So we go through the list of different agents like Coxiella burnetii causes Q fever, Brucella, Listeria. Uh, Toxoplasma, we talk a little bit about leptospirosis and um, lymphocytic chorium meningitis virus that would really come from um, pocket pets, guinea pigs, gerbils, pet rats, things like that as well. And so we talk about those things and the risk. And one of the things I really, in Toxoplasma, of course, uh, we I really advocate that as a pregnant woman, you should not be involved in animal birthing in any way. Uh, there are case reports of cats exposing uh, people with Q fever. Many, many reports of, of cats as they give birth, they aerosolize Coxiella, and that causes a number of infections. And so there are just too many, too many risks. So I really recommend that pregnant women stay away from. Uh, the uh, active birthing process uh, until until they've had their child.
0: And does that include C sections as well?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I would I would stay away from that. Anything where you have this amniotic fluid contact or potential for aerosol uh, that's a definite risk factor. Even even a pregnant woman go, stepping onto a farm, coxiella is aerosol. Transmitted. That's really its most common route. And it's, it's really hard to avoid, actually, if you're on a farm where there's any livestock. And so, but we, we focus mostly on the animal handling aspect of being around births. I think that's the most logical and most urgent aspect of that and, and the risk. Um, and then I, I kind of branch out and talk about immunosuppressed clients, immunocompromised clients, so elderly clients, um, clients who have young children, clients who may be immunosuppressed because of a medical condition, so they may be on chemotherapy, or receiving immunosuppressive medications. Maybe they're an organ recipient, um, they have HIV or something like that. And in the United States, that, that population, when we combine that with pregnant women, that's 20% of our population. So I stress to them, look, you're going to be seeing somebody in this group and here's here's your approach. Here's what you want to do with them to, for you to avoid number one, a lawsuit and number two, to keep them safe so that you reduce their risk of zoonotic disease and family risk as
0: well. Does that include splenectomized people as well? Is there? It is does,
1: there... yep, it does. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah. There's something. Um, it's all coming back to me from my GP days. The um, Bordetella <laughs> vaccine can can cause infection in um, immunocompromised people.
1: Yeah, um, there, there. As far as the vaccine goes, I think, to my knowledge, there's really only one report that I'm aware of. There might be a second one, but one report of the vaccine being connected to a Bordetella infection in a, a person, and this was a woman. I'm trying to recall, she was immunosuppressed for some reason. It was a medical condition, or she was um, on immunosuppressive medication, but she had taken her dog to get the Bordetella vaccine. It was the intranasal vaccine, and it was about two weeks later, she came down with signs and symptoms, and they isolated this, and it was Bordetella. They didn't match it genetically back to the strain in the vaccine, so it's only – sort of circumstantial evidence, but it's it's very, very well connected, I think. Oh, well. So I always recommend if you have somebody who's, you know, if you have a little lady who's bringing in a dog and you're going to give a Bordetella vaccine, use the injectable. It's, it's probably very unlikely that if you use the nasal that, that that would infect the person, but we know there's at least one report of that happening, so... Why not just use the injectable?
0: And do you have a good tactful way of asking people if they have any sort of immunosuppression or if there's anyone in the household with it?
1: What I suggest to students is, let's say I'm going to use the intranasal Bordetella vaccine. I might have a quick conversation with the client and say, okay, this is a a modified live uh, bacteria. And if I put this in your dog's nose, he could shed this. And there's a very small chance, it's not very common, it's very rare, very small chance this could infect people and cause some illness. So if there's anybody in your house who is at risk, such as someone over 65, someone under five years of age, someone who's maybe getting chemotherapy, you know, you can just kind of generalize it with these kinds of phrases. You don't have to ask, is there somebody in the house who's on chemo or is there somebody who has HIV in your house? You can just kind of generalize it and say, this could be a, a specific, a, a high risk for, for people like this. So if you think that's a problem, we can just use the injectable. You might be ready to defend why you wanted to use the intranasal to begin with and not the injectable if if you're going to have that argument or as a clinic you can just decide let's just avoid that whole issue and use the injectable to begin with
0: yeah
1: i mean it it is really rare risk so it's not it's not high risk at all
0: i had one near miss which was a well not i suppose a good catch would be a better word and um the client's had a two-year-old at home who had just been discharged from the icu following a really nasty pneumonia and was on some fairly whopping doses of steroids so we we just held off until um till they recovered do you know about the evidence base then for the the intranasal for the um, comparison to the injectable Uh, because i remember there was a a suggestion that starting with the intranasal and then boostering with injection was the the best strategy and i could be remembering that wrong
1: i don't i don't have that uh information um it it makes sense that the intranasal is more effective with that mucosal contact mucosal immunity but i I don't i i haven't looked at the studies or the evidence so i I can't say
0: you mean you're not a walking encyclopedia (laughs) what do i pay you for one thing (laughs) You you talked about a needle stick,
1: uh, and you did talk about needle stick, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I just did a. I just wrote an article for a journal called Clinicians Brief, and it uh, the article is called "The Top Five Bartonella of Human Concern," and we're now recognizing needle sticks are source of infection. For people, and this is a, a veterinary risk. And the Bartonella infections globally are, are extremely underdiagnosed and underestimated.
0: So, how can you go about one recognizing these things in yourself? Because, um, you know, having read on VIN and, and talking to other people, especially um, Lyme disease sufferers, you know, they have a really hard time reaching a diagnosis, and they're often Sort of asked to look it up themselves because being a veterinarian mm-hmm. you're expected to to know these zoonotic diseases so um I suppose this is really out of the the abilities of a short podcast, but you know how when should you go to your doctor? <laughs> mm. I don't know, I don't quite know how to ask the question that yeah. I want to ask, but well, I think you know, yeah,
1: I think there are people who get frustrated that they have an illness. They think it might be a zoonotic, or maybe they're sure it is, and their physician just doesn't believe them, or the physician's not doing anything. And I think in that case, that you need to pursue uh, the expertise of an infectious disease physician. So that's one thing I always recommend, that if you think, and I've, I've seen these people post on VIN on uh, a not-too-infrequent basis, that I've got this and I've been to this physician and that physician and this person won't test and this person will test for this, but not that. Well, well, go to an infectious disease doc because they're more likely to believe you. Yes, it may not be covered by your insurance. You may have to pay more out of pocket, but if you've been ill for two years and this really is something you wanna resolve, then then pay the money and, and try and get that resolved. Go to a specialty center.
0: Well, to sidestep into something I know that you are particularly passionate about, (laughs) talking with owners who get sick and their physician is questioning uh, the pet in the household. Um, I know the answer, but what are your recommendations Uh around testing pets for possible diseases that the owners might have picked up from them?
1: Yeah. There are only a few instances that I recommend that we would ever test a healthy pet for zoonotic diseases. And that is, if that animal might be the source of a, an outbreak, so let's say it's a bird from a pet store and we've got nine people, nine employees at the pet store who are now ill. Well, okay, let's test the bird for what you think might be in the people and see if it's in the bird as well. Uh, if it's part of a uh, emerging disease outbreak kind of thing. Uh, that would be another, you know, if it's a brand new disease, never seen before, and it appears to be coming from, from um, dogs. But the other, the other instance I would recommend testing a healthy pet would be if, let's say it's a, a nursing home or assisted living home with an elderly population, Sometimes these facilities will have small aviaries, so they'll have cages of five or six budgies or something like that. If you're going to add the budgies to these these cages and put them up in, in these homes, well we should be testing them for chlamydia because that's that's an agent that the birds can be asymptomatic for. They can shed it in respiratory secretions, feces, feather dander. It's aerosol transmitted and you've got a high risk population. So Let's test the birds and we can run you know individual tests, we can do pooled fecal samples. But I almost I never recommend beyond those really, I can't think of any circumstance I would recommend testing the healthy animal for zoonotic disease. Number one, if the human's ill, testing the animal, number one, is not gonna make any difference in the treatment of the human. They're still gonna get the same medical care and, and that kind of thing. Number two is sometimes I see people who say well, this person's got an illness, and they want to test the pet for zoonotic diseases. Well, that's pretty vague. The, the human doctors need to do their, their legwork. They need to diagnose what the infection in the human is. If they say, okay, well, this person's got Bartonella. Let's test the cat. Well, you test the cat. Maybe you find it. Maybe you don't. What does that mean? What are you going to do about it? The treatment of the person's not going to change. We don't recommend clearing the cat because it's it's an infection they pick up when they're young, and they will eliminate it with time if you keep them indoors, use flea control, those kinds of things. So for most zoonotic diseases, we can prevent them with a lot of common sense, hand washing, keeping the animal indoors, not letting it hunt or eat garbage, keeping the nails trimmed, scooping the litter box daily, uh, wearing gloves, washing hands frequently, cooking our meat well, washing our vegetables, those kinds of things. You do all that kind of stuff and that really drops your, your risk even further. I mean, in general, the risk of an average person acquiring a zoonotic disease is low. It is, it is low. It's not a common thing. And so going off the deep end and saying, let's test the pet, to what end? What would you do if you found that? And this is something that students have a hard time with. If you find it, no matter what agent we're talking about, the client's probably gonna expect you to do something about it. And that's when I tell the students, if you're gonna test, no matter what test you're running, if you're gonna test for anything, you better have a plan. Because the test is either going to give you positive, negative, or maybe uh, indeterminate somewhere. So you better have a plan of what you're going to do. It could be do nothing, or the next step might be do something else. But you're going to have to kind of map this out before you start down that that road, because it could turn into a real headache for you. I had uh, a veterinarian tell me that a client brought a cat she had just adopted from an animal shelter, and she said... I've got this immunocompromising condition. Test the cat for everything I could get. Well, there are no there are no sterile animals really, unless we're talking about laboratory-raised animals in some cases. So everything, animals they're gonna have something. Cats, 75% of cats have pastoral maltosita in their mouths. That's normal. We're not gonna try and give the cat an antibiotic to clear that. Uh same thing with Bartonella. We expect that a cat that's maybe been outside or has had fleas, that yeah, it's gonna probably have Bartonella for a year, maybe a little longer of its life, but it will clear that if you keep it indoors and treat it for fleas and that kind of thing. So it's really academic. If you, if you want to try and, you'd have to identify the offending agent in the human, genetically uh, describe it, and then isolate that same pathogen from the animal and genetically describe it and match them genetically to say, yes, they're the same. And then you have the problem, well, who really infected who? If we're talking about a pathogen like MRSA, most often it's the human infecting the pet, not the other way around. So if you found MRSA in the person and in the dog, would that mean the dog was the source? Mm, No, it just means they both have it. You, You couldn't say which direction it went. So, there's really almost no good reason that's that's defensible for for testing a healthy animal for disease. That's my bottom line.
0: Oh, I love it. Yeah, it, it ties nicely into things like pre-anesthetic testing for young healthy pets. Um, what are you going to do with those results if they're uh, they're a positive and they're not showing any clinical signs? Um, mm-hmm. Well, so on the on the topic of of hygiene, I mean, what what sort of role do you think hand sanitizers have to play because now they're they're almost ubiquitous in the healthcare environment so in in what areas can they let us down let's say you've got hands that aren't visibly soiled in in what cases should you be not relying on those hand sanitizers
1: yeah good question um so i asked my students this as well i think we we probably brought this up on our third day of class I hold up my little bottle of hand sanitizer that I keep in my pocket that every self-respecting public health person carries. <laughs> and I say, does this work? I said, which is better, hand sanitizer or hand washing? And they always say, hand washing. And I say, how do you know? And there's complete silence, right? And that's, that's the problem with a lot of topics today is that people just accept what they hear what they maybe read on the internet or what somebody says, or somebody they trust says, without looking for the evidence themselves. And the evidence shows hand sanitizer works better than hand washing in most cases. And you just, I just, I I could take my students and I do take my students to our local human hospital and there are hand sanitizer stations everywhere. And we meet with the infection prevention nurse and she's in charge of preventing infections in the hospital. And she can't say enough good about hand sanitizers because if you take the average human nurse, they if they wash their hands properly for 20 seconds every time they need to, will spend almost little under an hour on an eight-hour shift washing their hands, which leads to dry, cracked, bleeding skin. Uh, and then they don't want to wash their hands, so then they... Don't have compliance, and then they lead to that leads to infectious disease transmission. Hand sanitizer you know, you put your hand under the machine, you get a dollop of foam, you wipe it in, in 20 seconds, you're good to go. So, the compliance is much higher. Infection rates go down because they also stress hand washing, so you can combine the two. And when you don't have organic matter on your hands, it's been shown it's more effective than hand washing. Uh, when you do, Have organic matter, that's where it falls down. So I I tell my students, you can't put your hand in a cow pie and then put a few drops of uh, hand sanitizer, wipe it around and, and, you know, go eat lunch. Well, you could, but you'd be eating by yourself probably. So organic (laughs) matter, right? It's not effective in organic matter. It's not effective against spores. So clostridium or anthrax, hopefully it's not anthrax spores, or protozoa. So cryptosporidium, giardia. Uh, those kinds of things. Uh, It's not effective, really effective against non envelope viruses, which the most common cause of foodborne illness in the United States is norovirus, a non envelope virus. It's also a common uh, cause of outbreaks on cruise ships. Would I still use it if I was on a cruise ship? Yes. Would I rely on it? No. But uh, yeah, it works great. I use it. I I have a sister-in-law who doesn't believe in it, but it's just—it's because most people, it's like climate change, right? They're—they're they're not digging into the science and reading the studies themselves. They're just going on what somebody they believe uh, says and not really digging into the evidence themselves. So I try to point that that out to my students.
0: That's a great thing about science—is it doesn't matter what your opinion is; it doesn't change the facts. Yeah, I did see that you are on right. the uh, the Iowa Climate Change Educators uh, Board or you're a member of the Iowa Climate Change Educators.
1: Yeah, so we have this this organization that a group of faculty from various universities across Iowa that we put out a position statement every year regarding climate change. So some years it will focus on impact on agriculture or may impact uh, focus on um, building infrastructure types of things, that kind of thing.
0: Well, so what about um, for our, our hospitalised patients? And you mentioned leptospirosis earlier, which I suppose is always a big one that that the team are really concerned about, rightfully so. Um, and now many places have isolation protocols and isolation units. So for something like leptospirosis, how much barrier nursing is too much and how much is, is too little? And let's say, for example, Um, something like leptospirosis, and now a lot of places are barrier nursing for something like uh, hemorrhagic diarrhea. So how far would you go um, for either one of those cases?
1: For both of them, well, we know lepto is zoonotic. The bloody diarrhea may or may not be zoonotic. I would just assume that it is until proven otherwise just to be on the safe side, because I wouldn't want to be, say, at home with bloody diarrhea for the next week or so. And for a clinic, the owner of the clinic, the management of the clinic, that can be a liability problem as well, that if you relax too much or you don't send your employees through the, the proper education to be aware of these and your protocols don't reflect the need of safety, uh, and you have uh, at least one person fall ill, what does that mean for you? Do you face a lawsuit, uh, and what if that person died? There was, it was back in the 80s, there was a clinic in California, a vet clinic that also had a dog kennel, and one of the kennel, uh, young men who worked in the kennels contracted leptospirosis and died. Oh, wow. And there was a technician at UC Davis in the 80s who worked in the ICU uh, facility. She also contracted leptospirosis. She didn't die. So one thing I like to point out is that everybody who works in a clinic should be aware of the zoonotic risks, whether they are the um, student who comes in after school and helps you with the kennel or whether they are uh, a technician or a veterinarian, anybody who's going to work with animals should be aware of the zoonotic risks. So, as far as leptospirosis and barrier nursing, I mean, making everybody aware of how leptospirosis is transmitted and the risks that that they all face. Do you want to take that dog? I get this question sometimes in a in a very cl- veterinary clinic. If I take a dog that is leptopositive, we don't have them on a urinary collection system, and we take him outdoors to urinate, how do I disinfect that? Let's say it's grass. And the answer is you can't. So you know, keep the keep the urinary collection system uh, uh, you know, use that as as much as you can. But making everybody aware, and I w- I'm, I'm certainly for a little bit more protection than, than less just to be on the safe side. Maybe it's because I you know know all about the diseases and, and the risks, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of of the philosophy. If you get a, a client who calls and says, my, my cat's got this skin problem, I need to make an appointment. And when they come in, before anybody touches that cat, well, the appointment's for a skin problem put on gloves, it could be ringworm, it may not be. But if you're handling it with bare hands and by the time you think, oh, this could be ringworm, it's too late, you've already been exposed. Same thing with diarrhea or vomiting. Dogs coming in with diarrhea, history of diarrhea, let's put them in maybe this room that we're gonna put all dogs with diarrhea in who come come in because we're gonna disinfect these rooms at a higher level and uh, I'm going to wear gloves before I touch this dog kind of thing so that you're, you're approaching this proactively until rather later. There are some great outbreak reports of salmonella in veterinary personnel who see these young kittens maybe coming from animal shelters who have diarrhea and outbreaks in the clinics, especially uh, one report of how these clinics will sometimes have food Laying around for the, the people to eat, the technicians, the workers,
0: Ooh.
1: and that you you combine oh. that, you put this, you know, somebody's got some biscuits and chips or whatever laying around, and in the treatment area, and you get this young cat that has diarrhea. You've handled the cat, and then you go for a snack, and yep.
0: so yeah, it's that's happened.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm a big advocate of of PPE and you know skin uh, skin appointments many diarrhea appointments, put on the gloves before you touch you may not need them, but better safe than sorry.
0: Yeah, I've, I've taken to wearing gloves a lot more frequently now with any unwell patient that comes through and I now do exclusively emergency medicine, so <laughs> wearing gloves for everyone. One thing I try and tell any students we have coming through is anytime there is trauma, they must be wearing gloves as well, because, you know, the classic story of, well, there was a dog fight. Someone tried to break up the dog. They got bitten. Um, you don't know. Is I that human blood that or is that animal blood that's actually on the patient? So why take the risk? Put some gloves on until you can be sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I saw that a lot when I was on emergency as well. But that's when you you say to the, the, the person who's bleeding, you need to go to the uh, the hospital you need to go get checked out
0: yeah and then you'll get one one owner who's brought the dog in and then the other owner is is over in the hospital and then you might not find that information out until 10 or 15 minutes into the consult and then Mm -hmm. you've got human blood all over your hands so let's say you're exposed to the urine of a a lepto suspect because We all know diagnosis takes 9 million years um, for <laughs> leptospirosis patients. Um, when when should you go about treating or seeking care for yourself? Is that a wash out the mucous membrane and then seek care right away? Or is that a go to your GP at the earliest opportunity? Or what sort of urgency are we talking about?
1: Yeah, so I think with that kind of exposure, and I had a uh, veterinarian uh, ask me very similar question about how they'd been giving a bath to a leptopositive dog that was in their clinic and somehow or another, I didn't quite get the whole story, she got splashed in the face with urine. So right, I think washing, washing your face, washing your mucous membranes, do we need to go to the level that they do for other diseases where they recommend eye washing for 15 minutes? I don't know. Um, nobody's really put out that kind of recommendation. But I think if I were splashed in the eyes with urine, I would want to wash my eyes out with saline solution, wash out my mouth as well. I don't think you need to go to the emergency room at that point because you're not gonna fall deathly ill in the next hour Uh, and you're not gonna, um, you're probably not gonna get a lot of response from an emergency room either. But I would certainly go to your your family doctor, call them the next day, and, and make an appointment and visit with this uh, uh, physician about this exposure. In the United States, I get mixed messages. It kind of depends on the physician as to their comfort level. They will put the person on a prophylactic uh, uh, regimen of doxycycline, or they'll say, let's monitor you and if you develop a fever, then we'll start doxycycline. It's usually either or is, is what happens.
0: Very well. Thank you for that. Well, I suppose I've got, got two final questions for you. And one is, what sort of bad habits do you see around clinics or around students? And what are the most common sort of pitfalls or shortfalls you see in, in people's behavior surrounding their safety when handling patients?
1: I, and what I hear from the students in the clinics is more often that they are looking to take more safety measures than what the the technicians who have been working here or the clinicians who have been working here want to take. So I often hear, I won't say often, I hear sometimes students want to do this. And the residents, interns, clinicians, technicians say, uh, you don't need to do that. Let's just do this and, you know, let's go. We're in a hurry or something like that. So students maybe sometimes want to take more safety measures and are kind of held back. But I can't really think of, of, of anything in particular that, that comes to mind as far as what they're failing to do or, or to recognize. Uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head.
0: Fair enough. Well, to, that transitions nicely into the last question, which is, do you have any good resources for people who are wanting to develop an infectious disease control plan or a health and safety plan? Um, any good examples or, or papers that they can reference to develop that?
1: Sure. Uh, if they go to the National Association of State Public Health Veterinarians Veterinarians.org, uh, dot org. N-A-S-P-H-V.org. It's a U.S. Group of public health veterinarians. They put out these. This is the organization that writes compendiums on many different things: rabies, psittacosis, Q fever, brucellicanus. But they also have compendiums on veterinary uh, preventing um, uh, zoonotic disease transmission in veterinary personnel. So they've got one lengthy document that sort of lays out the need for. Uh, protocols, written protocols, as well as PPP, PPE application. And then they have a, a model uh, form that the clinic could use, adapt for their clinic to put in SOPs as well as PPE application. So those would be two good documents that if I managed a clinic or owned a clinic, I'd want to read through those and see what am I doing? Are there some you know, good, good things in here that maybe we should be applying. So it covers things like what PPE, what PPE should you be using when you do a necropsy or a dental? Should everybody be vaccinated against influenza? Should everybody be vaccinated against rabies? Uh, what, you know, what disinfectants work, don't work, things like that. So that's the place that I recommend a lot of people start with. I do talk to students about how do you train people in zoonotic awareness if you've got technicians who are new to the field if you've got kennel help whose job is really just to come in and and clean the kennels feed the animals and leave how do you how do you approach educating those those individuals so you know we talk about things like uh, having group meetings uh, maybe making one of the employees give a presentation so if you've got let's say you want to talk about leptospirosis, you want to Bring the zoonotic aspects and, and your SOPs to h- highlight those. Well, you could have a fa- you could have a, a staff meeting, and you could have uh, okay uh, make make one of the technicians give a five or ten minute presentation on leptospirosis. and that forces them to learn about that topic. Uh, you could send them to continuing education. You could give them you know required readings and that they have to maybe initial once they've read these things. A lot of clinics give handouts to their clients on all kinds of things right from puppy vaccines to behavior to zoonotic diseases well you could take those zoonotic disease handouts uh and, and give those to your your staff and have them read those or whatever websites you point to your clients to
0: fantastic yeah i've just pulled up that that model infection control plan and it's great that's a that's a really nice resource thank you i think a, a lot yeah. of people find it helpful. Um, brilliant. Well, before we, uh, we end for the night, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Any fun projects or anything you think is important to mention?
1: Well, I do want to put a plug in for the OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health. They are having a photo competition right now, global photo competition until April 5th on animal health. And so any veterinarian or veterinary student, they're encouraging... To submit a photo, and you can win money prizes, world fame, and recognition. Oh yeah! And I, uh, there are three judges, and I am one of them. So they can uh, submit their photos, and maybe, uh, and maybe win some money and fame.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll put that up in the show notes as well. Um, Okay. We all want money and fame, I think. Brilliant. Yeah, I would definitely get that out there. I love, oh, that's one of my favorite things about the advent of smartphones, despite how negative um, a force they can be. But the ability to take and share good quality photos, I think, is mm-hmm. is so fantastic. Um, I also feel like it's probably like the most underrated fomite in the hospital environment is your <laughs> mobile phone. But I suppose that's... Uh, right, right. Uh, It's
1: it's a little scary where those phones end up.
0: Yeah, the nooks and crannies... Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ratford. This has been really great. I um, hope you've enjoyed yeah. it as well.
1: Yeah, it's been fun.
0: Well, that brings our podcast to an end. Thank you for listening, guys. And thank you for those of you who've left reviews so far. If you do want to leave a review, the best place to do so is still Apple Podcasts, and I'll go ahead and throw up a link in the show notes if you're keen to do that, which we always appreciate. Otherwise, I will also put the links to the things that we discussed in the show, including the various documents, the photo competition, the books, etc., etc., in the show notes as well. If you do have any questions, any concerns, shoot me an email. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.